brief disclaimer this week, it gets pretty violent. And there's some mention of adult themes. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, we're finishing up the Odyssey and closing a major chapter of Greek mythology. We'll see that Odysseus gauges success by how many things are thrown at him at dinner parties, and that if your hosts are attacking you, maybe you've overstayed your welcome, and you should probably get on the road. The creature this week is a murderous skeleton who just wants some roommates. This is Myths and Legends, episode 237b, to strive, to seek, to find, not to yield. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, Odysseus arrived in Ithaca, his home, to find that his house had been overrun by violent men who wanted to marry his wife. Disguised by Athena, Odysseus, with the help of Telemachus, his son, has now infiltrated his home and come into confrontation with Antinous, the head suitor, and rejected a summon from Penelope, his wife. Now he's in a fistfight with another beggar. Iris grinned as he kept his fists up, protecting his face. When he was done boxing this old man, what did he call himself again? Odysseus, Odysseus replied, then added, no relation. Iris said that these were his begging grounds. After he knocked Odysseus to snores, as the story says, and is a really nice way of saying gave him a concussion, he would ship Odysseus off to King Ecatus, who skins people alive before chopping them up which, yeah, is a thing he apparently did and everyone knew about and went along with. The ancient world was wild. Anyway, when the boxing beggar, Ero, showed up, he immediately shoulder-checked Odysseus on his way out, who said, kindly, that Ero should watch himself, lest he crack some ribs. This got everyone's attention, and Antinous, the lead suitor, saw an opportunity. He asked the boys if they wanted some entertainment if they wanted to watch these two old guys pummel each other. He yelled out that they were already the villains of the story. Why not really lean into it? He looked to the old beggars. How about it? Winner gets a seat at the table. Eros was a hulking man who liked to throw his weight around when he could. So he was more than happy to challenge Odysseus to a fight. And Antinous worked up the crowd to the point where Odysseus only had two choices. To kill the man or simply shatter his jaw and knock him out. Odysseus decided on the latter, when Eros, big but slow, threw a punch and left himself wide open. Blood and teeth spewed from his mouth, and Eros dropped. It was a two-hit fight, as they say. Odysseus hit Eros, and Eros hit the ground. Odysseus dragged Eros outside the gate and propped his own begging stick up next to the man. He wouldn't need it now. He was invited in. Antinous was annoyed, but grinned and told Odysseus, good job. They would make sure that this guy went to the king who skins strangers. Man, this story is dark. Not as dark as it's gonna get, Odysseus muttered. What was that? Antinous asked, 
but Odysseus was already among the men, accepting a goblet for his performance in the fight. The night wore on, and the party kicked up. Odysseus, far from hanging to the side, was in the middle of things, calling out the staggering, swearing guests. Odysseus dipped to dodge the second stool that had been thrown at him that evening, and it careened over his head, hitting the goblet of another suitor and the plate of a third. Both stood, fists clenched, but Telemachus slid in between them. He knew that nothing he said mattered to any of them, but they should go to bed. None of them could hide the cups they'd taken, which is a pretty poetic way of saying they're fall down drunk, and it was obvious. Their fuming turned to the young prince, but another man spoke up, saying, essentially, yeah, let's all go to our rooms. Because they had rooms. This beggar had to sleep in the great hall, on the floor, if he even got a roof over his head. The men downed their cups, and watching Telemachus and the beggar, the men drained from the hall. When they did, Odysseus stood up straight. Let's do it. They worked quickly, getting the weapons down, clearing all bows, arrows, swords, shields, and spears from the rooms. You have a light? Telemachus asked in the shadowy corner of the room, where the torches were smoldering. A brilliant white light bloomed next to him. Odysseus smiled. Athena was there. The gods were with them. The light followed Telemachus to the storeroom, where he piled the weapons, barred and locked the door. Good work. Odysseus smiled to his son. Get some sleep. Tomorrow is a big day. Telemachus breathed deeply. This was the first day with his father back under their roof, since he was a baby, the first day he remembered. This home was no longer a prison filled with men who had been jeering at his mom since he was a boy. It was brighter now. The air even felt different. Where will you sleep? Telemachus asked Odysseus, as his father draped his skin on the floor. Odysseus pointed to the skin. Telemachus shook his head, but Odysseus grunted as he laid down. Beggars didn't get rooms. No one could know he was here. This would do for tonight. I get to sleep. Odysseus interlaced his fingers behind his head. He had slept on the deck of a ship. He had slept in the dirt. He had slept in a shack. He had slept in the beds of goddesses. Feeling the stone of his home underneath him, though, this was the best he would sleep in the past 20 years. He closed his eyes. You were supposed to come see me, he heard. His eyes snapped open. It was her, Penelope. Odysseus was, was speechless. It had been two decades since he held her at the docks, since he promised through tears that he would find his way back to her no matter what. The cold nights at Troy, on the deck aboard his ships, in the wilderness, huddled under leaves. She was what he thought about each night. Here she was. He found his breath. Penelope asked him who he was. Odysseus rose. He said that that answer was too painful, and he couldn't be found sitting in another's house. In tears, not with all these men around, Penelope grimaced and turned. <sighs> these men. You had to watch what you did, what you told them, how you acted. She had tried to keep them at bay. She had waited for him, for Odysseus to come home. She hoped for so long. Then, 
as more men showed up and pressed her harder, she came up with a plan. A shroud. She said she couldn't bear to be taken away from here, while Laertes, her father-in-law, didn't have a shroud to be buried in. He was still alive, of course, but he was getting older. He wouldn't be alive for long. She knew that she would never see this home again if she was married to some faraway king. She had to do her father the honor. And the men agreed to that. So, for three years, she wove during the day. And for three years, she undid her work each night. A maid gave that one away. One of the ones who had fallen in with the suitors. They saw that she was trying to delay the inevitable. And now, she had no choice. The longer she waited, the more her son's estate would be consumed. Her parents were sending her letters to remarry. But she... She held out hope. She looked off, and then shook her head, turning back to Odysseus. She was hesitant, but she asked him. The swineherd said he had news of him. Of Odysseus, Odysseus managed. Yeah, it, it was a long time ago. But he had hosted her husband on Crete when he stopped off on his way to the war. Oh, Penelope said, looking to the ground. So, no news after. Still, she should like to hear of him. The beggar did an excellent job of describing Odysseus because, well, he was Odysseus. And the memory made Penelope smile before it made her cry. Penelope's maids rushed to her, but Odysseus broke in, saying that he hadn't lied to the swineherd. He did have news. Penelope looked to him. What was it? Odysseus said that he had heard Odysseus's company had been sunk by Zeus and Helios after his crew accidentally feasted on the latter's cows. He had survived, though, and he was coming home. The last the old beggar heard, the Phaeacians had a boat ready for him. He was just adventuring for that last bit of treasure to make the whole trip worthwhile. He didn't want to come home a, well, a beggar. Penelope nodded, drying her eyes. Well, they would see, wouldn't they? So many men had told her so many things over the years for one reason or another. Still, this beggar did it in the right way, earning her friendship with tales of her husband first before trying to sell her hope. Tomorrow, the beggar would sit next to her son at the feast. And at that feast, there would be an announcement. Penelope turned up her nose. Wow, first though, the beggar needed a bath. She clapped her hands and a maid, who had been with the household for decades, rushed forward and grabbed Odysseus' arm, leading him to a nearby bathtub. As they walked, she looked the man over. He reminded her of him. Odysseus cocked an eyebrow. Uh, really? She settled him down into the bath and started scrubbing while Penelope inspected things in the other room. Hey, weren't there like weapons here? When the nurse, Euryclea, made it to Odysseus's foot, she froze. Odysseus looked down to where the old woman had been scrubbing and saw his scar. Once, when he was a young man, he had been wounded by a boar while out hunting. The old woman had scrubbed that scar countless times. A look of hope washed over her face as she rushed up to study Odysseus's, oh my gosh, you, you're, are all the words she managed before, and the story says this, Odysseus wrapped his fingers around her neck. Not another word. The woman was gasping. Odysseus looked into her eyes, clear and urgently whispering that it had been 20 years. His plan was almost complete. 
if she ruined this and told Penelope, he would kill her when he killed the others. It didn't matter to him that she had breastfed him as a baby. The nurse nodded as best she could with someone, you know, strangling her, and Odysseus let her go to a gasp. The elation over seeing Odysseus returned outweighed the threatened murder, and not only that, she was down for some retribution. She knew of all the maids who had taken up with the suitors, because that's absolutely something they had chosen to do and hadn't been forced into it at all. She could name names. Odysseus nodded. Excellent. He told her to trust in the gods, stay quiet, and keep her peace. He would find her later, tell her his plan. When the bath was finished, Odysseus found Penelope, once again, in the great hall. She said that she was going to bed now. She was happy to have made a new friend. Then she hesitated. She turned to Odysseus. Hey, she had a dream. Maybe he could help her interpret it. Odysseus nodded. Absolutely. He'd love to try. And this is me, Jason. As I'm telling you the dream, remember that this is in the actual text. Penelope, in the dream, had 20 fat geese who came to eat from her house. And one day, an eagle with great wings and a crooked beak stormed in, broke all their necks, and left the bodies strewn throughout the house. The eagle then spoke, saying that this isn't a dream, but a real thing that will happen. Her husband will return and kill the suitors like this eagle killed the geese. Then, Penelope awoke. She turned to Odysseus. What did he think that dream meant? Really? Just, really? Odysseus didn't say that there was no subtext to that dream, only text, and it spelled itself out. Penelope shook her head. So many dreams are so confusing. Some are no consequence at all. Odysseus didn't point out that dreams are confusing, but not that dream. That one seemed to have some pretty clear and stated consequences. But Penelope continued. Tomorrow, tomorrow would be a black day. She had no reason to hope anymore. She wanted a future for her boy. And that came as soon as these men were out of her house. She would choose tomorrow. Ulysses was silent. She said that the time had come. She would put on a competition. It would be something her husband used to do. You see, there were 12 axe heads, each with a hole in them. Odysseus and his prime would line them up, stand back, and take a shot, making the arrow go through all 12 without touching any of them. The first man who was able to do that would be the one she chose. It wasn't Odysseus, but it would be the closest she could hope to get now. The beggar smiled as Penelope made her way off the bed, saying that he thought Odysseus would be back long before any one of these boys would be able to string his bow. see the big contest, but that will be right after this. The next night, as the quavering voice of the bard sang out, muffled by the doors of the great hall, the jeers and wine-soaked shouts forced their way through, as they always did. Odysseus had ducked out, 
as the competition was getting started. Well, kind of. The men were having a hard time stringing the bow, let alone shooting it. Odysseus found the man he was looking for. Do you want to know how I got this scar? Odysseus said to the swineherd outside the great hall. His name is Eumaeus, by the way. Eumaeus, the swineherd, stood transfixed. He, he knew how Odysseus got that scar. He, oh my gosh, he was shaking. Tears were brimming in his eyes. Their king was home. He had to tell no one, Odysseus demanded. He would tell no one. The swineherd didn't understand, but he nodded. Absolutely. Odysseus glanced around. Who else could they trust? There are four of us. Four of us versus 120 of them. The cowherd, Philodius, noted to his king. Odysseus looked him up and down. There was still time to back out. Of course, they might have to tie him up and stuff him in the armory until it was over, or kill him. Philodius shook his head. No, he would take Odysseus's deal. If he and the swineherd did this, if they fought alongside their king, Odysseus said that they would be considered as sons, like brothers to Telemachus. The commoners knew a chance to change their lives forever when they saw it. It just might cost them their lives, though. Still, now that they were in on it, they saw Odysseus for who he was. They saw their king as they had known him, brimming with brutal intensity. Even though it was four versus 120, they wouldn't stand with a thousand men against Odysseus. Odysseus told them to huddle close. You, he said, pointing to the swineherd. Eumaeus, the swineherd nodded. Odysseus said that they would survive, and then he would see about remembering names. All right, so inside, those guys are trying to string the bow. My bow. They won't be able to but they also won't want to see a beggar try his hand at it. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. Odysseus focused back on Eumaeus, the swineherd. When the time came, he was to ensure that that bow found its way into Odysseus's hands. No matter what was said, no matter who stood in his way, Odysseus got that bow. Eumaeus nodded. Odysseus turned to Philodius. He was in charge of barring the doors. Odysseus already had someone on the outside, a non-combatant, but she would ensure the women were safe when the time came. Telemachus, in a rare bit of assertiveness, had ordered his mother from the room for the competition. Penelope was safe away from the main hall, already in bed. Odysseus took a deep breath. All right, today was the day. The trio entered the great hall to find Telemachus presiding over some hardcore awkwardness. The men who had been talking a big game over the past few years who had claimed that they were better than this king of Ithaca, who had lived in his house, harassed his servants, tried to kill his son, and terrorized his wife, not only couldn't shoot his bow, they couldn't even get that far. They couldn't even string it. The trio entered the room to a team of guys rubbing oil on Odysseus's bow and warming it by the fire. Eurymachus, one of the suitors, flexed as he pressed down on the bow, but it wouldn't give in the slightest. Antinous, the lead suitor, who, no, had not tried his hand at the bow, put his hands on his hips. You know what? They should take a minute, sacrifice to Apollo, the archer, and then come at this fresh tomorrow. I'll give it a shot, they heard from the door. A sea of faces turned to see Odysseus, hunched and wizened by the door. They spit out their wine laughing. No, the old man couldn't have a shot. That was ridiculous. 
Telemachus rolled his eyes. What did it matter to them if an old man got a chance? Were they really so worried? Antinous said that it wasn't a question of whether or not he could do it. The beggar couldn't do it. It was that it sullied this whole competition. Yes, wouldn't want him to sully a competition that forces a woman into marriage. That was sacred, Telemachus said. Oh, or, you know, Antinous could shoot his shot. Telemachus held out the bow, and Eumaeus, the swineherd, jumped in and took it. Antinous grumbled as the swineherd made a beeline for Odysseus. Don't give him that bow, swineherd, Antinous said, but Eumaeus kept walking. Did you hear me? Antinous said, his heels pounding on the stone as he followed the man. Just before Eumaeus reached Odysseus, Antinous grabbed him by his collar and wrenched him over. Looks like someone wants to be fed to his pigs. The room jeered, but Eumaeus extended his hand and Odysseus took the bow. Antinous looked the swineherd over. When he was lord of this house, this kingdom, this man would be the first to go. He shook his head, pushed Eumaeus to the ground, then went to grab his drink. Odysseus hobbled up to the place where the axe heads had been lined up. The room around him fell to murmurs as the old man tapped the bow, testing it for cracks or termites that might have marred it in his time away. Some laughs went up as they joked that the old man must have been an archer in his youth. But how long ago was that? Odysseus breathed. He nodded to Flodius. The cowherd swallowed hard and dropped the door bar. He turned and looked to Euryclea, the old nurse. She rushed the women from the room and shut the door. Penelope was in bed. Everyone who didn't deserve to die was out of this room. Odysseus felt an arrow. It was time. In one motion, he stretched the line and bent the wood. He did what a hundred men couldn't and strung the bow. A hush rippled across the room. Then, Odysseus looked to the ceiling. He prayed that Zeus had heard him. The old man threw off his cloak, and thunder shook the hall. In an instant, he was changed, and Odysseus stood before them. He knocked the arrow, aimed, and let it fly. It whooshed through all twelve axe heads without touching them and found its target. The men in front stood, staggering back. It, it was impossible. Odysseus stood like a god above them. He had faced Cyclopes, sirens, shipwrecks. He had survived the greatest war humans had ever known. It had all been to return here, to Telemachus and Penelope. Now that he was here, these men thought that they could stand in his way. The gods couldn't even stand in his way their reckoning had arrived. He said that to a room that was only half paying attention. They had heard the thunder, to be sure, but this was a big room, and Odysseus didn't have a PA system, so even a guy yelling on one end would barely register on the other. That's why Antinous, despite the reveal of a lifetime happening on center stage, wasn't really paying attention. He was draining a goblet when the arrow flew through the axe heads and having a side conversation when Odysseus made his big reveal. When he did look up to the beggar that was trying his hand at what none of them could do, he did so just in time to see the arrow coming for him. If the announcement didn't get their attention, Antinous flying backwards in his chair, slamming into the stone, did. The men that dared to look found the lead suitor in his last moments of life, desperately, futilely clawing at the arrow sticking through his neck his screams drowned out by his own blood. 
The room was shocked and looked up at Odysseus. What they thought was just a wild shot that took down one of the most powerful men in Ithaca was anything but. The king of Ithaca stood above them, saying simply that they thought he wouldn't come home from Troy. They plundered his house. They twisted his servants. Contempt was all they had for gods and men. Quote, your last hour has come. You die in blood. Immediately, swords were drawn. As Odysseus, picking up another arrow, moved to protect the door, he had them all here. If even one of the suitors made it out alive, to their allies in town, they would raise the alarm and send reinforcements. They would burn his home to the ground and kill them all. Another leader stood. Eurymachus, bronze sword flashing in the torchlight, yelling that it was a hundred to one. Hold up the tables to deflect the arrows. Rush him where he stands. Who was with him? Wide-eyed and nostrils flared, he stared down Odysseus and charged. He made it, well, two steps, before an arrow found his, quote, nipple, and he was thrown back by the force of the blow. Odysseus lowered the empty bow with a smile. Nice. Nipple adjacent stabbing. Trojan War style. The king of Ithaca was so deep in nostalgia for the good old days of carnage that he missed Amphinomus, one of the other suitors, as the man raised his sword behind Odysseus. The suitor had caught the king flat-footed and was about to bring down his blade when he froze. Odysseus did finally notice him when the suitor fell over, a spear sticking out of his back. A few paces off, Telemachus stood, readying another spear. Odysseus smiled. My boy. During the reveal, Telemachus had been gathering what they needed from the armory, where he had stashed things the night before, in the storeroom just off the main hall. He put on a plumed helmet and tossed two more to Eumaeus and Philetius. Together, all four stood, as 100-plus angry men gathered around them. We will get back to the bloodshed, but that, once again, will be right after this. The battle turned more quickly than Odysseus feared it might. The goatherd, Melanthios, the one who had kicked Odysseus the previous day on his walk up to the estate, spotted a high window in the hall that led to the storeroom that Odysseus was using as a makeshift armory. As Odysseus peppered the crowd with arrows, pinning men to the walls they were clawing up trying to escape, Melanthios was tossing spears, shields, and swords out the window to the suitors. Telemachus and Eumaeus charged into the armory, binding Melanthios, but the damage was done. The suitors, armed and armored, we're now ready for the fight. Hey guys, mentor. Odysseus's elderly friend said with a grin. He now stood in between Odysseus and the suitors, having appeared in the middle of a tense standoff. Hi, mentor, Odysseus said to mentor. Hey, so remember how like I've been devoted to you, mentor, my entire life? Think you might want to join the battle here, mentor? Odysseus asked. 
The suitors, not getting that it was actually Athena, screamed for Mentor not to be led astray by Odysseus. After they killed Odysseus and his kid, and they would do that, they would have Mentor's throat slit for his betrayal. But they wouldn't stop there. They would find Mentor's family and do the same, tearing apart his household, taking his wealth, and banishing anyone who supported him from the island. Despite one person saying they're so devoted to her, and a whole group of people threatening to murder her and everyone she cares about forever, Mentor, aka Athena, turned to Odysseus. Where was Odysseus whose stratagems brought down Troy? Where was the guy who fought alongside Achilles and Agamemnon? Now he was complaining that she wasn't helping him? Weak. Not complaining, just asking. A th Mentor? Oh, come on. Like in Batman, smoke came from nowhere, obscuring Mentor. When the smoke cleared, the man was gone. Odysseus noticed the swallow perched on one of the beams and rolled his eyes. The suitors rallied, saying that they needed one good volley and the four would be down and they could escape, raise help from town and kill anyone else who stood against them. They looked up, praying to Zeus that their shots might hit. They turned and slings and arrows flying at essentially point-blank range, none of them hit. Well, nothing to read into there, the suitors agreed, and stormed the four men. Heartened by the gods, Odysseus, Telemachus, Eumaeus, and Philodius held the door. They didn't flinch when some of the spears or arrows grazed their sides or arms. Swords flashed as father and son, Odysseus and Telemachus, fought side by side. Athena looked on, and smiled. It was time. Another peal of thunder, ten times as loud as the first, shook the room. In the smoke, the shining form of Athena lowered. The suitors looked on the glory of the gods and despaired. Odysseus, Telemachus, and the others were filled with a battle fury, and Athena, in the form of Mentor, relished the carnage. They were hawks among lesser birds, leaping from suitor to suitor, tearing them with swords and spears before moving on. The suitors broke and fled, but they had nowhere to go. And as the story says, torn men moaned at death, and blood ran smoking over the whole floor. In the end, only two were spared. The bard, hiding in an alcove, and the herald, both of whom Telemachus vouched for. A priest and a seer among them, who, yeah, should have seen this coming, wasn't so fortunate when he hugged Odysseus's knees and begged for his life. Soon, the room was filled not with the sounds of partying or battle, but Odysseus and co, plunging spears into the fallen, giving them an undeserved quicker death. Then, silence. It was over. The suitors were dead. Odysseus, painted with steaming blood, walked over and unbarred the door, the one that went deeper into the palace. Euryclea, the elderly nurse, waited on the other side. When she saw Odysseus, Telemachus, and the others, and that they were still standing, she smiled. Stepping into the hall, picking her way over the bodies, she grinned. She turned with a smile to Odysseus, who only shook his head. He said if she was going to rejoice, she should rejoice inwardly. They won, but it wasn't good what happened here. Death had followed him to this hall from Troy. These men merely met their fates. They were bad men, and a bad end befell them. Odysseus looked to the nurse. There was more death to come. 
we talked about this last week, but you know my thoughts on this. I think this story is pretty unfair to the female servants who laid with the suitors. And the story is also very clear on what it thinks of them. Ancient Greece will ancient Greece, after all. There were 12 women out of the 50. They were tasked with dragging the bodies from the room and piling them up outside the wall. Then, they cleaned the room, scrubbing the blood and grit and entrails and brains from every crack. After a long night of work, they were led outside, where the swineherd and the cowherd watched over them, swords drawn, as the light of dawn warmed their faces. Telemachus hanged them one by one. Inside, Odysseus told the nurse to wake Penelope. It was over. Penelope thought that she was dreaming. She awoke to the nurse's tears of joy. Odysseus had returned. The suitors were dead. She pushed open the door to the great hall. It was clean and ordered. The torches burned brightly. He stood in the center. A god. A god had come and freed them. Cold corpses gathered at the gate. The nightmare was over. Penelope looked on the man. A sob escaped her. She said her husband had died. She told herself that he died so she could force herself to do what her whole being screamed out against. She waited for him. And here he was. She wanted to believe. He looked younger now, even than when he had left. Penelope shook her head. No. The nurse's smile faded. Telemachus shook his head. No? Penelope had studied well the stories of the gods. She, like her husband, was always thinking. She had been wary of this. The final deception. She hadn't held out for so long to be deceived into taking Zeus into her bed, as other women had been tricked into doing. No. Her husband was dead, no matter how much she wanted him to be alive. She turned to the nurse, this... This man, this Olympian, whatever he was, they wouldn't be accused of being inhospitable. He had still saved them. The nurse should wash him, and he would be able to sleep in Odysseus's bed. But not with her. She would have the bed moved from their room and taken to one of the suites they used for visitors. The man in the center of the room cut her off. Who did that? A chill ran up Penelope's spine. Did what? Moved my bed. Who was in there? Which craftsman cut it loose? Penelope allowed a smile. What did he mean? The man stepped forward. The olive tree. The olive tree only he, Penelope, and one other servant knew about. Even Telemachus didn't know about it. It stood rooted in the ground. Its trunk stood as one of the posts of their bed. Odysseus had built the room, the palace around it. Which craftsman could have possibly moved it and why? Tears exploded from Penelope. No one. No one moved it. It was the final test. It was the final test and he passed. Penelope flew to Odysseus and he took her into his arms. The pair kissed. After 20 years of war and wandering, of sleepless nights and uncertainty, they were finally together again. 
Odysseus looked out on the field. He sighed. They had lived at fallow since that day. Twenty years ago, he whipped the oxen, sowing salt in his own fields, trying to convince Menelaus and Palamedes that he was crazy because a crazy man can't be forced to go to war. His ruse had been revealed when Telemachus had been laid before him, and he had a choice, kill his son or go to war. The next day, he had kissed his baby on the head and held Penelope before leaving. He prayed that the prophecies were wrong, that the gods were merciful. Neither were true. The long road that he started on that day had finally come to its end. He told Penelope everything, the horrors of the war, the crushing despair of losing friend after friend, what a city looks like as it falls, the atrocities he had seen, the atrocities he had committed. He sighed as he told Penelope about Circe and Calypso. But she stopped him. She took him into her arms. He did what he had to do to return to her. And he had returned to her. Odysseus had seen enough death in his time. Now, it was time to live. He would make good on the years that he missed with Penelope and Telemachus. With his father, who, until very recently had been living in mourning for his son. The gods, he knew, would give him peace now. The day after the carnage of the hall, he, Telemachus, and the other two met Antinous' father at the head of a mob. Odysseus had been out to see his own father, and as a father himself, he understood the man's pain. Still, Antinous's dad threatened Telemachus and his home. Odysseus listened to the gods one last time and let a spear fly. Like his son, Antinous's father met a violent death at the hands of Odysseus, but it was the final death. Athena descended among them, ordering both sides to break off this bitter feud and find peace. They were all countrymen, all Ithacans. There had been enough death, and the men listened. They made peace on that day for the dead, and the suitors were spoken of no more. Odysseus knew that others would come from without, from the far-off corners of Greece, seeking restitution for their sons. But he knew the gods would handle that in their time. His wars were over. Odysseus patted the old ox and hooked up the plow. He took a deep breath of the air, the air of his home. He didn't know what tomorrow held, but he was alive. He knew that they would tell his story for generations of a time when men strove with gods. But he didn't care about that. Not anymore. He cared about Penelope. And if the horse was going to have a foal this year, and what they were going to have for dinner that evening, how the crops would grow, the weather, he cared about Telemachus and making up for the years that he had been away, for learning about the boy he had left as a baby, but who had grown up to be a better man than him. As a young man, Odysseus had yearned for fame and glory. Now, he yearned for peace. Legacies were for dead men, and there were enough of those. He cared about life, every part of it, and he was going to live it. He gave the gentle signal to the old ox, and the plow began to move, turning the earth behind it. 
Odysseus looked off into the distance, at his long-sought-after Ithaca. He was happy, and he was home. it, our long journey that, in many ways, started back in episode 10, is at its end. I hope that you enjoyed these episodes. Adapting them has been challenging, emotional, frustrating at times, and inspiring. And whatever you've thought of our work, it's easy to see how these stories have lasted throughout the centuries, and how their deep humanity echoes, even to the modern day. Today's title comes from a poem, entitled Ulysses, by Alfred Lord Tennyson. If you didn't know, Ulysses is the Roman name for Odysseus. That poem offers a different, but no less profound, depiction of the post-Odyssey Odysseus, and it's one of my favorites. If you're interested, I posted a link to it in the show notes. The creatures this week are Bakwas and Zinukwa from the Kwakutl people in the Pacific Northwest. The Bakwas is a skeleton guy who wears war paint, I mean, I think you could argue that if you're a skeleton, you probably don't need war paint to be scary, but don't tell the Bakwas that. I mean, do tell him that if you find him, but you're probably not going to find him because he's very sneaky. It's said that he uses the sound of rushing water to mask his movements through the forest, and that he uses it to sneak up on fishermen to try to drown them. Why? Well, I'm guessing it's because he's lonely. Because the drowned all come to live with him in his invisible house. And yeah, I'm also wondering if the house is like a regular house, but outsiders can't see it, or if it's an invisible house where everyone can see in and all the drowned roommates can see each other. If he can't sneak up on you, he'll kill you with kindness. Literally. He has a cockle shell out of which he eats ghost food. If you're wondering what ghost food is, it's bark that looks like dried salmon. And he uses it to tempt lost travelers who don't have any other options. If you eat that bark you'll die and be stuck as the roommate of the Bakwas. The Bakwas, in some traditions, has a girlfriend, the Zanukwa. She's another forest creature who has children with the Bakwas. She's a giant who's naked, elderly, and bedraggled, and her life revolves around her children. In fact, she's supposed to be extremely rich. So if you want to risk angering a skeleton with ghost food and his girlfriend that can't die, just kidnap a magical child. Because that's how you can get your hands on some of the Zanukwa's wealth. Just, you know, be aware that in doing so, you're pretty much the most evil creature in that forest. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>